I remember the feeling of, I don't want to be the man who grows up who is a hard driver mm-hmm. on himself because, you know, as you said, how you treat others is how you treat your own heart. Yes. And I don't want to be the man who treats my own heart that way or others that way, no matter what the result, no matter how good the campaign, no matter how successful, I don't want to be that man. And so that started a journey in me of transformation. And I just remember realizing I cannot change me. This is going to have to be you, God. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to be this man anymore. Yes. And that was the beginning. Welcome to Become Good Soil. I'm your host, Morgan Snyder, a podcast for men choosing a decade of excavation. Alan Arnold has spent close to three decades ascending the corporate ladder and bringing a huge impact in publishing. But along that road, a deeper journey was also at work. Alan chose the narrow road. He chose to respond over a decade ago to God's invitation to go from orphan to son and to go from productivity to presence. Alan is a really good man, and he left the corporate Christian publishing scene and joined our team recently at Ransom Heart to take us to the next level of bringing the message and the mission of Wild at Heart and Ransom Heart to the corners of the globe. Alan's a good father to Chase and to Gray and to Hope and a really good husband to Kelly. He's a good man and a good friend. And he's our guest today to reveal some true gold that he's discovered in the masculine journey. I think you're going to like this. Alan, thank you. Thanks for joining me for this conversation. Absolutely. It's good to be in the studio with you. Same here. So, Alan, for these guys to get a sense of who you are, give a snapshot. Who's Alan Arnold when it comes to vocationally and then just practically your family and your story? Yeah. Well, I would say, um, just to give you a quick overview, I'm 48 years old, um, didn't get married until my early 30s, mm-hmm. and so uh, have young kids, have uh, right now an 8-year-old, 11-year-old, and 13-year-old. Okay. Uh, have been married 16 years, and uh, love, have always loved story. And so in, it, from my early days in childhood, just loving story. Uh, Superman comic books as a kid, um, to novels, uh, to TV shows and movies, that really helped define a lot of how I saw life um, in an epic, heroic way that I didn't necessarily see from my dad or in family. And um, as I grew up, then ultimately spent 20 years in publishing Mm. uh, at Thomas Nelson, and the last nine of those were as a fiction publisher. Okay. So God in his kindness both use story to help define me, um, help me see the man I wanted to be, and then eventually in career, help me live in story as a fiction publisher. Yes. And uh, now I feel like I'm even living a greater story at Ransomed Heart because I get to still live in a world of content and resources overseeing those. But now instead of fiction, yes, it's really going after what's true. Yes. Really going after the heart. Yes. So by way of story, um, Grab a story from your story that you said, this is me. This is Alan Arnold, where you rewind the clock and, and somewhere kind of vocationally, where where you found yourself going, this is what I love to do. Yeah. Well, the first memory of that I have in a, in a very vivid way is in college. And I went to Texas A&M and it was my sophomore year and you have to declare your major your junior year. Yes. And I was in the school of business and and was in accounting because that's where the money was. Mm -hmm. And when recruiters came, you could see them drive up in limos, pick up the student, take them out for a night on the town, promise a huge salary. It was just very alluring. Yes. And I hated accounting. That was the only problem. (laughs) And I wasn't good at it. But I was striving for something that I thought would would deliver the results yes. in terms of a nice future. And I remember being on campus my sophomore year. It was nighttime. I was walking back to the dorm and just realized, I can't do this. Like, I cannot be an accountant. I don't care what the money is. I don't, I don't care what the payout is. And what I really love 
is the creativity of marketing. Yes. And so I remember calling my parents just saying, I don't think I can do this accounting thing. And, and in a very kind moment, they just said, hey, you do what makes you come alive. Wow. And I remember the freedom that night. I mean, I can see it right now of just going, okay. I mean, I can really do what I love doing, even if I don't make as much money. And then later I realized the people who make the most money are doing what their dreams are. They're the ones Over doing time. what they love, yeah. not where the demand is or not what the hot career is for that right. moment. Wow. Oh, it's so good. Alan, so what I'd love to do then is fast forward from college, but then also from the present moment, rewind the clock. And I want to get back to that decade in your life where you were a young man. I mean, obviously, you are in a unique position. You were married later in life, had kids later in life. And so in some ways, you still have young kids. But you are a couple decades away in your journey from those young years where you were at the beginning of a career, right? right? And you found yourself, like most men, looking at the world and wanting to make your mark. I'd love to rewind the clock and visit that place in your story and Give some practical pieces of where you were, and then let's dive below the waterline and help me understand what were you feeling in that time? Well, right out of college, my dream job would be to work at an ad agency. And this was long before the series Mad Men came out. But, okay. But that is kind of what the ad world was like then, um, a very wild, creative place, in hindsight, with a lot of men who never grew up, yes. but who were very creative. Interesting. And so I entered into that world and loved it. It was high creative, and that caused me to come alive. But what I also started um, realizing in my first job was a lot of people aren't making it. And so the way to make it is to work harder and longer Mm -hmm. and be more creative and survival of the fittest, Mm. especially in the advertising business where you lose a client and you could lose your job. Mm. And I remember one time being at the agency on a Saturday and the head of that division who was multiple levels above me was there and my cubicle was outside of his office. So he's working in his office. I'm working. It's a beautiful Saturday. I'm spending my whole day working, trying to get ahead. And he knew my dad was coming in that afternoon to visit. And as he walked out, he handed me a sealed envelope and he said, hey, give this to your dad when you see him and just walked out. Mm. And, you know, that's a little threatening. Yeah. It's a guy who I didn't know very well, but who could blink, you know, a certain way and you'd be fired. Wow. And so I saw my dad that night and gave him the, the letter and he opens it up and the letter basically said, I want you to know what a great son you have because he's the kind of son who works on a Saturday and who gets things done and who will make things happen. Wow. And something in me in that moment looking back, and I still have that letter, and something in me in that moment, it was a sense of praise for the wrong thing. Yes. But I latched on to it. Yep. And it was, okay, the guy that works on a Saturday and yes. that does whatever it takes to you know, improve the company's bottom line yes. or his career is the guy that is favored. Yes. So that really set the pace for my career from then mm. on. After a few years in the ad agency business, I realized if I get hit by a truck tomorrow and all I did was promote sugar water, yep. we were on the Pepsi account. Mm, fascinating. That's not a very fulfilling life in the end. So I learned how to market but didn't want to do it for a product that didn't have any meaning. And so I shifted and at that time got into Christian publishing and spent the next 20 years there. So at that point, you're promoting products that you hope make a difference in people's lives. Yes. But, boy, the internal still continued to be fed by performance, drivenness. And I even had a quote, Morgan, on my desk um, that came from, I think, a fortune cookie at one time, but I wrote it down on a note card and had it like taped on my desk. And it said, the one who says it can't be done should get out of the way of the one already doing it. Wow. And And that's taped on your desk at the Christian publishing house. Oh, and I didn't see it as, you know, 
I saw it as a very positive thing. Yes. Like, I'm the guy. Yep. I'll get, I get it done. I get it done. Right. And so, now I get it done for Jesus, right? Right. And now it's holy. Yes. And so that quote, which makes me nauseous now, fueled me. And so really every day there were small battles I was fighting and unfortunately being successful at winning most of the time. Yes. There was a point where we were going on a video shoot and I had the crew, the video crew, and it was time to board the plane and I was on a phone call, and so it was a quick board on a small plane, then the door shut. And I turn around, and the crew's on the plane. Mm. There's a flight attendant, and behind her, a plate glass window where you can see the plane. And I said, I need to get on that. And she's like, I'm sorry, the plane's already left. Mm. And I said, no, it hasn't left. I see it right behind, you know, mm. it's right there. Turn around. No, the plane's already left. Wow. Well, this is the kind of guy I was. I said, so you're not going to let me on the plane? And she's like, nope, you're not going to be on the plane. It's already left. And I said, okay. So she walked off, and I walked through the emergency exit door that led to the ramp to the plane and no. just walked on the runway to the plane. No. And the pilot walks off, meets me midway on the runway. This was before 9-11, or I would have, okay. I would have been shot yeah. dead, you know, right yes, there. Yes, exactly. But ultimately, I get a seat on the plane. Wow. Like the whole plane waits. The guy who was in my seat had to get out. And everybody on the plane was pissed at me except yes. for the video crew. Yep. But I was like, damn right. Yes. Like, I'm, I'll make it. I will be the bull in the china shop. Yep. I'll be whatever it takes, but I'll make it happen. Mm. Thankfully, I'm not that man anymore. And, wow. and there's some stories there. But that was during those decades, especially starting in the 20s and then going through most of the 30s. Yes. I was a very driven, high productive, make it happen guy, and it was successful and I was rewarded financially. Yes. The more I did, the more I was given. Mm. And the more I was given, the more I found a way to do. If you were talking to me at 35, 36, 37, 38, that would be the man you'd be talking to. Wow. I hear the undercurrents of validation and identity. It was validating you, right? There's this question in you as a young man saying, do I have what it takes? And you want to know who you are. And from the moment that that letter is handed to your father, which is just so fascinating because we long for the father's validation, right? right? right. And in here, the enemy sets you up with a good man bestowing this validation on you through your father because he's getting these praises handed to him and it just fuels that false self in you and that drivenness and you see the fruit of it. I hear the pain of just decades spent chasing the validation. Yeah, and the note was handed to me by a man who himself was very driven. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was there on right, Saturday. Right, So and, he thought you were doing the noble thing. Right, and so he thought he was bestowing to me what worked on him. Yes. And they were words my dad could never articulate. Yes. And so for those words to be handed from a very high-level work yes. you know, associate through me to my dad, yes. it was all kind of tangled validation. Exactly. It, right. It's, it's as though your dad spoke it, right? The very man you want to. I mean, you see the enemy's ploy of using your strength, using your gifting, and twisting something, right, to right. keep you on that treadmill. Right. And so it's fascinating, Alan, you use the word nauseating. You right. said, here was this quote on your desk that was really your pride and joy, your energy and your fuel, right. that at the time you would have said, this is awesome. You know, I'm doing something noble. And now you said it makes you nauseous. Right. That's a stark contrast. Put some words to what you mean by that and what shift transpired so that you could be able to say that today. Well, what I mean by that is it was such a lie from the enemy that I bought into and fed on and used that to make me into the man I was that I look back now at the lie and, oh, man, it makes me sick. And kind of the moment where God started to put a crack in that armor I had built yep. was uh, my boss about a decade into this two decades of being in publishing, um, he came up to me in, in office next door and he said, Hey, man, you got time for lunch? And we had a cafeteria downstairs mm -hmm. at this building. I said, yeah, let's do it. Sounded like a casual lunch, no agenda. Yeah. We sit down with our food. And I, at that time, I had about 10 people 
underneath me okay. uh, who reported to me. And he said, hey, I want to ask you a question. Do you know that the 10 people who report to you um, all think you're an ass? Wow. And I, just, wow. I mean, there's few times where I find myself literally speechless. Yes. And, you know, I remember that moment and I just stared at him and he said, the only reason that they will put up with you is because you have good ideas. And so they will report to you and put up with you because you ultimately have good ideas that make them successful. But they think you're an ass. Wow. They do not like your presence. And um, in the past, I would have pushed against that. Yes. You know, I mean, well, hey, that's what they say about me. Well, let me tell yes. you about them. Yep. And I think this is why they're trying to cover their own tracks yep. or be thankful I am an ass because yes. otherwise nothing would get done or, you know, any variation on that. Well, thankfully that day, by the grace of God, enough just focus to breathe deep and mm. take it in and not push against it. And I remember the feeling of I don't want to be the man who grows up who is a hard driver mm -hmm. on himself because, you know, as you said, how you treat others is how you treat your own heart. Yes. And I don't want to be the man who treats my own heart that way or others that way, no matter what the result, no matter how good the campaign, no matter how successful, I don't want to be that man. And so that started a journey in me of transformation. And I just remember realizing I cannot change me. This is going to have to be you, God, mm -hmm. but I don't want to be this man anymore. Yes. And that was the beginning. And I wish it were something that transformed in about a week, but it was about a, I would say six, seven year process for me from that moment to really start becoming the man I am today. But man, it was a good, you know, I remember throwing away that quote. Mm, that's a big day. Huge day wow. and the beginning of of who I am. Well, yeah. you just said something really important. You're saying from that day at the cafeteria, it was six to seven years of process. Right. Of That was a major revelatory moment, but six or seven years of walking with God, of excavating, of going after this isn't the man I want to be, to really see some deep and lasting fruit. Right. What it was the start of that day, I chose humility at the table, at the cafeteria that yes. day, honestly, the first time in my life. Wow. I think I actively chose the humility to go, okay, mm. like this is how other people yes. see me. And I'm not going to try to excuse what I do, justify it, override what he's saying. Yes. I'm going to sit in it and weep, you know, later on my yes. own time. Um, and yeah, start the journey. Well, what's so beautiful about that, Alan, is by you choosing humility, God actually over time continued to increase your influence, increase your impact from a kingdom perspective where your role grew in publishing and leading more, taking more projects, going on a bigger scope, and then even more precisely diving into Ransom Heart, where he's just fine-tuning your gifting and at the same time through your maturity, the scope of the impact of your life is just broadening, you know, with every passing year. And so it's just amazing how it was actually the humility, which was the counterintuitive approach rather than the pushing that actually invited the building of a kingdom, but it was God, if I hear you saying right, it was God that built this kingdom in you through choosing humility and taking the long road. Yes. And God, I believe, works through us the ways great stories work in that there are really wonderful parallels yes. and irony and things that happen in chapter two pay off in chapter 10. Yes. You know, in stories, but but in our story. And what was really a wonderful book into this was when I was talking to Craig right after I started Ransomed Heart, he sent me down and he said, hey, listen, I want you to hear me on this. We want you here for your presence, not your productivity. Wow. I know you're a driven and have been a driven 
productive guy, and I know you'll produce things here. Yes. But that's not why we want you. That's not why God has you here. He's invited you here for your presence, wow. not your productivity. Well, that's the exact opposite yes. of what those people, my reports years ago, had said, you know, which wow. is, we think you're an ass. We don't want you for your presence. Exactly. At all. We want you for your productivity. Yes. You better thank God you're productive because you're an ass. And otherwise, you'd be gone. And so for the invitation at Ransomed Heart to be, no, 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 it's not for your productivity. We want you at the table for who you are. It really floored me wow. because I didn't really know what to do with that. I embraced it, but rather than make me comfortable, initially there was a great amount of discomfort because I knew how to be productive. Yes. I didn't know how to walk in the room naked, yep. you know, with no fig leaves and be valued for just me yes, and not the spreadsheet or the performance of a division or the revenue. I just love how God had that poetic sense of story. Oh, of, it's amazing. Let me redeem this fully now when you're in your 40s and have you with a group of men who are all about the heart, all about presence. And that's why they want you. Yes. How long was it between those bookends from when you're in the cafeteria and they say you're an ass to but you're productive, to being with Craig and him saying, we want you here because of who you are. 12 years. And amazing. So just over a decade yeah. of true excavation, of going after first things. Yeah. So now, Alan, as you're in this role externally, it's very similar in that it's still centered around your gifting. But internally, it sounds like it's an entire paradigm shift in motivation Give me a story that's an example of a situation where you found yourself offering who you are in your current season when you could have offered productivity instead. You know, in past seasons, what you would have offered is productivity. And instead, you offer the weight of your life and the fruit of it is much more true. Right. Well, two quick stories. The very last few months of my time in Christian publishing, after 20 years, I ended up giving them my notice, but they asked me if I would stay for another six, seven months. Well, it's rare to stay that long after you've said I'm leaving. What they asked me to do was find my replacement during that time, and as the fiction publisher. Well, the way I saw myself as a new creation at that point was, basically, they were saying, hey, Alan, over the next seven months, you're here. You're present. You're in the meetings. But in so many words, what they were asking me is, you've got seven months to make yourself irrelevant. Wow. You need to make write this other person. Write yourself out of the story. Right. Write yourself completely out of the story so that when you walk out the back door on that last day, nobody even notices because everything's working so well. So especially, I think, for a man, you know, every man, I think, tries to start well. Yes. And every man tries to write himself a bigger part in the story. But it's very rare and hard for a man to write himself out of a story that he loves doing wow. and to make himself irrelevant. Mm. And so the humility that I chose a decade before really was tested in that because, well, I was with a group of men just last night and over cigars and scotch, we were just talking about life. And... One of the guys said, you know, when I took over this job for this other man who left, I did a good job. I was really successful. That man came to me a year later and he said, I wished you had failed. Wow. Because, because it would validate him, right, right? Right. It would have validated me. And this man said, I'm about to leave the job now, years later, and I find myself wishing my successor won't do as well. Yes. And to find yourself at the end of one part of your story and try to finish well in humility to make sure the eyes in the room all go to this other person, not you, mm. even though for 10 years you were the decision maker. And now your goal is don't look at me. Don't ask me. Yes. Don't ask for any wisdom or any guidance or mentoring. Mm. So that was one, I think, test of can I finish well yes. after 20 years or am I going to try to leave not quite helping the other person get everything they need mm -hmm. so that I'm still called six months later. Yes. Hey, Alan, man, how do you do, you know, something's not working. Mm -hmm. Can you help us? How do you give it everything you've got and leave? 
empty-handed and um, finish well. Yes. So that was one example. It ransomed heart. I think the biggest example was for me, I came from leading a team of about 12 people to being on a team of about 12. And knowing as I came on, I would have, in a sense, one of the lesser seats at the table. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a speaker at the events. I'm not the guy who's going to make the ultimate decision. Mm-hmm. And so you walk into an environment from having been the decision maker and it goes at the pace you set to I want to be, I'm choosing to be with a group of guys who are trying to follow God. So not only am I not the guy making Mm -hmm. it happen, but there's not even a guy on the team who's really trying to make it happen. Mm. We're all trying to say, okay, God, how do you want us to proceed? Yes. And so it was a very disruptive um, experience. I mean, it was what I was craving and what I love, but at 48 to find yourself letting go of a career that I could have probably done another 20 years fairly easy yes, with a handpicked team and mm-hmm. authors that were handpicked and probably done 20 more years of regular promotions and and enjoyed the fruits of that yes. to come into something that's more wild and less structured. And hugely risky. Risky, moving across the country. Yes. Um, but saying, that's the man I want to be. Yes. Like, that's where the gold is. That is when I was reading you know, comics early on and seeing the guy who was the hero who wanted to help others and who wanted to sacrifice and who wanted to have a, a humble strength. Like now as a, as a grown man in my 40s, I feel like more the parallel of who I am yes. than this hard-charging bull in a china shop who took no prisoners and accomplished a lot and was pretty miserable Mm. in the process. Mm. Well, Alan, because we've had the privilege of being on a team together, hearing that story, it dramatically increases my respect for you because I have witnessed you walking through that road of shifting worlds and operating in this world that's so different from the one that you're painting. And you've done really well and you've exercised a lot of humility and taking the posture of that lower seat, even on a practical level, is always risky for a man, but you've really handled it well. And so I say that to point out the fruit that came from those decades of choosing to say, nope, that's not the man I want to be. I really commend you for that. Thank you. Um, On the days here where I feel that old man trying to kind of slip back in, Mm -hmm. and it's not often, but on the times or the days where that does, the phrase you just used is what I will say to myself is just, no, I'm not that man. Yes. I'm not that man. And sometimes it takes 20 seconds, and sometimes it's to drive home that night, which is a 30-minute drive. But, you know, it's it's that – just refusal to slip back into the old ways of validation. Yes. Um, I feel my best when I contribute by my presence and not the productivity. And that's the same I'm learning with my children. Like, to me, the issue of presence, the whole line of, you know, it's not quantity of time, it's quality of time. I mean, it's pretty much bullshit. Mm, in that, interesting. Yes, it needs to be quality, mm-hmm. but it needs to be quantity too. Mm. You know, you need that long, sustained presence with your kids. And a lot of the guys in their 30s have young kids. And, you know, they have that pressure of coming through at work and coming through at home. And one of the biggest lies, I think, that culture has sold to these guys is what you want is a balanced life. You want to have a balanced life. You don't want to go overboard at work. You don't want to go overboard in other areas. The goal is to try to balance it. And the reality is, no. First of all, it never will be balanced. Mm -hmm. And even if you could balance it, you're still choosing wrong because Mm -hmm. you want to be totally unbalanced toward family. Mm -hmm. You want to be very much weighted Mm -hmm. on what really matters most and give your best to the best in your life. And that's never a job, yes. you know, never a job. And thankfully, I did not have uh, children until my late 30s. Mm-hmm. And so I had the chance to already have read Wild at Heart. Mm-hmm. 
and had begun this journey and was well on my way. But if I had had kids in my like late twenties, early thirties, yes. oh man, I'd, I would be grieving regularly for that time lost that I would never get back yes. because of choosing what I thought mattered most to the world yep. was that guy who would work on a Saturday yes. and get it done at all costs. Yes. And so, yeah, I think when it comes to family, let your life be unbalanced mm. in the best of ways. Mm. So speaking of the unbalanced life and as it relates to family, I mean, one of the areas where you took a big risk is with coaching basketball. I want to hear some of that story because while you were walking in the message of Wild at Heart and while you were older than maybe a lot of your peers in making that choice to coach, you're still in the corporate world. And I can imagine there was still an internal battle around that choice. Take me into that story. Yeah. Well, I had been coaching my oldest son, and he's 13 now, since he was probably five Mm -hmm. on a Y team. And he was at a school before we moved to Colorado where it went up to sixth grade. And the fifth and sixth graders had kind of it was the equivalent of the varsity team. Yes. And so they had a full-time coach on staff, and he quit. And so they came to me and said, hey, would you like to coach your boy? And and that was really the first year I wouldn't have been able to coach him because he was on the school team at that point. Yes. And I thought, man, I would love to do that. But one, I don't have the time because practice was every day at 3, which would mean me leaving my office at 2.30. And two, I don't even know if I have what it takes to coach mm. starting at that age because the teams we'll be playing have full-time coaches. That's their career. Yes. Not just an hour or two. Wow. So – I went to my boss, though, and he was the president of the company, still is that, and a great guy. And I said, here's the deal. I'd love to do this, but, I mean, it's every day. Every day for four months, I will need to leave the office at 2.30, and I'll be out, you know, for the rest of the day. And he said, you got to do it. You know, do it. That's what's going to matter to your kid. He's not going to remember what you did at the office. Like, that's, yes, choose that. Mm. But then, and what did it feel like going to him on that day? Going in, it felt high risk because I always wanted to try to do things that made my superiors happy and probably yes. had that image of that other guy yep. who wrote the letter in my mind of, well, you get more praise when you work harder. Yes. Now, here was the catch to that, though. His comment was the current boss, as he told me, yes, do it, he said. And I know you'll get your work done because you're a hard worker and you'll find a way to get it done. Well, what that meant was, so I coached from 2.30 to 5, but then after dinner and after our kids went to bed, I was up till 2, 3 in the morning mm-hmm. or getting up at 4.30, 5 yes. in the morning. So the workflow didn't stop. It's not the kind of story where you just, you know, in a movie where you just start coaching at right. 2.30, but right. life doesn't change exactly. in any other way. So there was a high cost, and yet, oh my gosh, it was so, it was so worth it. These were kind of the bad news bears uh, group of guys, and that the school nor those boys were very experienced at basketball or had very much of a track record. And we ended up winning all but about two games, and our two biggest rivals, we beat both times we played. We played each team twice, and so had the best record wow. of like any team in the league. And and so God fathered me through that. Um, he didn't just help me coach boys. He coached me mm. and uh, helped me see that even though I didn't really know fully how to coach a team yes. that age, that if I would step out in faith, yes. we could do it. So it was a risk, yes. but it was the right choice. And man, looking back, Morgan, I can't tell you much specifics about the work projects I had yes. at that time yes, or even how sleepy I was. Yes. But I can tell you, you know, in vivid detail about our practices yes. and our games and the players and what it meant for my son. Yeah. So it's, there are those risky moments in life. And by the way, if that boss had said, no, you can't do it. I, I need you here. Well, I would have had to honor that. Yes. And I would have, but the point isn't if he said yes or no, really, the point is my heart was, to go for what mattered yes. and to live that unbalanced life yes. of choosing choosing for your children 
how to step into their world. And I'm so glad I made the ask, regardless of what the answer had been. That is just so key right there is the victories in making that choice, taking that risk. And what you're saying is you couldn't control the outcome, but the only way you're going to experience God is particularly as father in this situation is taking that risk. Right. And my son, who I was coaching at that time, the beautiful part, too, is we had a drive home together, mm. which was about 30 minutes. And so which every you wouldn't night, have had if you were right, working. I wouldn't have had. And on one of those drives home, God spoke through him. He was telling me about his favorite superhero cartoon show. And we had watched it together the night before. And he said, hey, Dad, um, you know that episode we just saw? And I said, yeah. And he goes, and you know how the villain said, well, the villain was destroying this town basically for this woman who he was attracted to. Mm-hmm. And the villain in the climax battle says, well, I fight for love. And the hero who was fighting him said, well, I fight to win. And then the hero beat the villain. And as a dad, I watched it and I was like, hey, yeah, great comment, yes. great show. Well, my son on the car ride home said, you know, I think they got it backwards, the writers. Like, anybody fights to win, but isn't the real hero the one that fights for love? Wow. It was a moment where not only did I love how my son thinks yeah. and what God was showing him and, and the heart in that, but I also thought that's another glimpse of the man I want to be. Yes. You know, asking my boss if I could coach basketball, it wasn't really about winning that get a yes, get a no. Yes. I was fighting for love. I loved the chance to be with my son and to pour into him. And that's what a real hero, you know, I mean, the hero and the villain fight to win. Like if you're fighting to win, you're just on par with whoever you're fighting. Right. But what are you trying to win? What are you fighting for? And yeah, I want to be the guy that more times... When somebody says, what's driving you? What are you fighting for? What's your motive? Yeah, it's it's love. Mm -hmm. Oh, Alan, that's so good. On that theme of fighting for love, uh, you have more than sons. You have a beautiful daughter, Hope. Yes. And uh, it's a whole other animal than coaching (laughs) basketball. Um, Yes. Right? I've, I've heard some great stories about Hope. And I really appreciate the visibility you're giving to just the tension This deep tension, like you said, it's very different than the balanced life. This tension of I want to be all in and present to my kids and give them the quality time. They get my best and they get my most. You know, they're my priority. You've really lived well in fighting for her heart. Pick one of the stories that give visibility to that same tension and where you landed on the side of choosing to fight for love and how you saw her heart affected by it. Yeah. Well, Morgan, in that same year that I was coaching, which was one of the busiest years of my life, I felt God saying, in the school, you need to try to lead an initiative to have a father-daughter dance. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't something they had ever done. It was a Christian school, but uh, it went through sixth grade, and they had never done that. And so I brought that up, and they said, hey, Okay, great idea. You can do it. Yeah. You know, whatever you need to do to do it, make it happen. Yep. Well, that's wonderful. Oh. But it it also would have felt great in the moment for somebody to say, yeah, we'll just make it happen. Right. Like, it's a great, great idea. idea. We'll cover it. Done. We'll take it from here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Done. So um, it's great. it was going to be Valentine's weekend. Okay. And this was like in October, right when I was starting the basketball um, practice. But I stepped into that. We got a committee. <laughs> but... You kind of think sometimes when you're fighting for your kid's heart, there's like one fight or one part to it. Well, so yes, now the dance is going to happen. But in the committee, it was a group of of women who were really nice women but who had no idea how to go after the hearts of daughters Mm. from a father's perspective. Mm. And just a side note here, no other men? There was – one other man, okay. somewhat on the committee, but okay. couldn't make a lot. of yep. it. So it was mainly a lot of women and yes. me, which is fine. But things would happen, for instance, like uh, we were talking about who should invite the girl. And one of the more strong-willed women in the group said, well, the invitation needs to come from the school. The school is inviting the girls to a father-daughter dance. I said, no, 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 it's not the school. It's... What goes for their heart is it's the dad. Mm-hmm. The dad needs to invite mm-hmm. his daughter to the dance. And so back and forth, back and forth, finally mm-hmm. got their okay on that. 
Well, then uh, somebody said, well, you know, how are they going to do that? And I said, well, the dad will write a letter to their daughter. Mm. Well, the same woman, Rose, stepped up against that and said, no way. Like, have you seen the handwriting of men? It's sloppy and it's messy and this is a beautiful event and we're going to have a woman calligraphy Mm. all the invitations. And then the dad can just hand it to the daughter. Mm. And, you know, I had to fight for that. Mm. No, it's not – the girl, when they have this invitation and look back years from now, they want to see their dad's handwriting, mm. messy or not. Yes, it's his. Um, right. And so the fight for Hope's heart and, and for all the girls there was, how do they see God the Father through their own father in this dance with girls who would be aged kindergarten through sixth mm-hmm. grade before girls were falling in love with boys, but their dad was the man they hopefully most loved yes. um, and looked to as an, a mirror of God. Mm-hmm. So how do we make this an, an inviting, intimate experience? Then I had to have a little bit of a struggle with the dads at the school because one of the things when I brought all the dads together before the dance, I said, hey, listen, two things. When you take your daughter to dinner, you need to dress up. Mm-hmm. What? Dress up? You know, no way. Mm-hmm. What? Yep, you need a sport coat. You need a tie. You need to dress up. Yes. And what was it you were trying to communicate there that guys were resisting? Well, I wanted the daughter to feel cherished and special and worthy of, you know, they've seen their dad in shorts and a T-shirt. Yes. Or they maybe have seen him in a suit at work, but probably have not been to dinner with their dad in a suit Mm. uh, in a special environment. And for them, right? For them, totally for them. And then if that was hard, the second part, I'm not just giving you kind of an analogy here. I'm being literal Leave your cell phone in your car. Mm. Do not bring your cell phone to the table. Man. And don't bring another dad and daughter where yes. you're talking to the dad. Yes. And the daughters start talking. Yes. It's you and your daughter. No distractions. And I think, honestly, I think it intimidated men in the sense of, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know, like, an hour with my daughter at a dinner and it's the two of us and There are no distractions. There is no place to let her start talking with kids and me Mm. check out a little bit. So um, it was a fight, maybe too strong of a word, but it was a it was a battle to try to keep the purity and the trueness of what is it like for a father to cherish his daughter, not just at the dance, but all the way up to the dance and the invitation and the dinner and what he wears so ultimately, the school said, well, would you record like a 30-minute message that people can go to our website mm-hmm. and all the dads can listen to mm-hmm. and tell them the spirit of this? Because it's not just a, yeah, I've marked off on my calendar from yes. 7 to 9 o'clock on Saturday night. Yep. It's preparation of your heart, her yes. heart. So that was one of the best nights Hope and I ever had, and even more just to see a room of kindergarten through sixth grade girls dressed up, beautiful, mm. their dads, you know, twirling them. And, you know, I remember one of the dads had like a, a kindergartner, you know, and he's slow dancing but holding her mm. because, you know, she comes up to his knees. <laughs> so he's holding her, you know, and whispering in her ear. And we had a, a live band there. And it was just, a, you know, I don't know if the school ever did it again because we left yes. the next year to come out here. But either way, I felt like, yeah, that's the kind of dad I want to be yes. for her. And that's the kind of men I want to see in the community raising their own daughters that yes. way. And so that's an example. Mm. Alan, I love that story. I mean, I just even feel emotion well up in me on a couple different levels. One, obviously being a dad and thinking about my little girl. But even more, as you share those stories, I see the contrast of these two men The one man is you at the cafeteria where you're productive and you've accomplished a career and God through another man calls you out and says, you know what your effect is on people? You're an ass. You're gifted, but you're an ass. And fast forward on the long road that you chose to take to go after the gold to say, the most important question about me is not what I accomplish. It's who I become and how I choose to fight for love or not along the way. And now here you are giving up 
all this precious, productive time <laughs> to coach basketball, to fight for Hope's heart, and to create a context through battle, through strength, through controlling women, through checked out dads, for other men to go after the hearts of their daughters, many of whom really want to and simply don't know what to do. And so you provided a context and some simple tools to say, show up with the heart, engage, and it'll be enough. You know, it's such a beautiful illustration that I just want to name for all the men listening of what's available, but only by choosing excavation. There's some shift in there where you had to say, I know these gifts that God has set within me, but I'm going to take my question of validation and I'm going to disentangle it from work, which has been so effective, and yet it's not fulfilling. And I'm going to give it back to God. Right. And just the lie that I think is fed to men in our culture, you know, most of the men listening to this don't struggle with passivity, Mm -hmm. I don't think. I think most struggle with achieving and coming through. And, And just the fact that, you know, so many of the guys like at the intensive, like you have to go through quite a bit just to get there. Yes. I mean, if you're extremely passive, you're not even going to get to the point of Right, you, you won't know, be considered. Light. So I'm speaking to those men um, and just saying the lie is that it's okay to trade off for so many years. You know, yeah, long term, you don't want to be a man who is totally driven and productive at all costs for your whole life. But in my 20s and 30s, yeah, I'm going to do that. And then then I'll shift in the 40s. That's kind of my story. But I'm here to say that's not the way to do it. Like if I could go back, I would have been that man from my 20s, from right out of college. Yes. And even if ultimately you ended up being at a lower level in your company yes. or you didn't become the global entrepreneur, yes. in the end – you're making the much wiser choice yes. because in the end, I just believe that nothing brings more happiness than your relationship with God and your relationship with others. And I've joked with my wife that if Ransom Heart went away before I would go back and do what I did, yes. I'll work at Taco Bell. Yes. Thank you very much. Yes. I'll make tacos and we'll find a way to live off that income Yes. before – I will let drivenness and productivity drive me to another highly successful career with very little time for what yes. really matters. Yes. And I I just believe that with all my heart. So, yeah, don't go for when guys say, I, I know this is not sustainable, but for the next few years, I just, mm-hmm. I just need to do this to get to a certain point. And then mm-hmm. – and, you know, our days – Aren't guaranteed. Yes. I mean, you may not even be around by yes. the end then. Yes. Or your kids may not be around by the end then. So it is, I think, the harder choice when you're in that excavation decade is don't just talk about what really matters and philosophically agree, but step into it. Step into it and live it and do it now. You don't need three years to phase into mm-hmm. it or to gradually kind of – you know, yes, sometimes transformation takes 10 years, but the goal is to start now. Yes. You know. So, Alan, for my benefit and the benefit of all the young men listening, it does sound like you're right. Unfortunately, for better and worse, you wasted a lot of pain for quite a number of years that you didn't have to. Go back to your early 20s and having known what you know now, what shifts could have taken place early? where you could have begun to excavate and take those deep questions of validation as a man out of performance and productivity and really responded to what I believe was God's invitation to you back then. In other words, it really escalated until an older man of authority had to call you an asshole. But I'm guessing in those earlier days, there were smaller and yet poignant invitations from the father saying, Alan, Alan, I have a better story for you. So there are guys right now that don't have to waste their pain. Help us out. I think it is an issue of presence versus productivity. So if you 
and let me translate that even more specifically, I think it's shifting in your 20s if you can or if you're in your 30s now or whatever age from what I realized now was an orphan spirit into a season of sonship. Mm -hmm. And I lived my entire life up until a few years ago as an orphan. Mm. And by that I mean it's all up to me. Mm. So if we need to get five new accounts at my company or five new authors in publishing, I'll go make it happen. If we need more money at the end of the month, I'll find a second job. Whatever we need or want, there's a vision of what I feel like I live my life as, which is as a kid who, knowing Christmas was coming up, would spend the three months prior to that working overtime as a 10-year-old, wherever he would work, to get enough money to buy his own gifts so that Christmas morning under the tree was exactly what he wanted and he Mm. didn't have to depend on anybody Mm. to get it. And that's kind of how I live my life is I'll take care of it. I don't need to rely on the kindness of God. I don't need to rely on others. Mm. I'm not really leaving any room for God to come through because I'm going to make it happen. Yes. And even in the times you make it happen, there's no joy. It's striving. And there's also fear that the next time, how are you going to come through? So the journey for me into sonship is a new one. In my late 40s is a new one, but is a major adventure that God has me on. And that's at the root of the performance and the drivenness. So if I could go back, what I would change is I would realize my identity as a son. Yes. And... So when it comes time when the boss says, well, you are going to work all weekend, and that's what makes you a successful man, to have that identity and got to say, no, actually, I need time to restore. Hmm. And this may not be the right job for me. Hmm. And so I love this opportunity, but not at any cost, Hmm. not at the cost of what really matters. And trusting God for where that would lead rather than my own drivenness or need to come through. And that would have changed. It would have changed everything. Now, I'm thrilled that I'm on the journey now. And literally every day, God is ushering me more into sonship, more into the mystery where now when a situation comes up where it's, yeah, I'm not sure how we're going to afford that. Instead of me saying, well, I'll just find some freelance jobs. I'll find a way to make it happen. It's going... You know, if my wife and I are talking, hey, I don't know how it's going to happen either, but let's be expectant. Let's let God come through because time and again he tells us, hey, I've got it handled. I've got it. Mm. It's okay. And learning to be the kind of man, that doesn't mean, by the way, Morgan, you know, that you go passive. Right. Or it doesn't mean that you check out or take your eye off the goal. It simply means It's an expectancy of my dad will come through and he will be the one who opens the doors. And, you know, with my youngest son, Chase, he's eight. (laughs) The greatest joys I have is I bought a big truck uh, when I moved to Colorado (laughs) and it's a used truck and it's, it's not real shiny, but it's a big truck. And it seats six, three in the front, three in the back, if you lift that console between the the front two seats. So there's that middle seat. Well, anytime Chase, who's, you know, he's eight, so he's a uh, third grader, gets in the truck and it's the two of us, he used to have to sit in the back, but now he's big enough to sit in the front just barely. But every time it's the two of us, he will get in that truck, flip that middle seat up, <laughs> not ask me, just flip it up and sit right next to me, like leg touching leg and arm on my thigh. And he's just like, what are we going to get to do, Dad? And he never asked me, well, do you have enough gas in the car? Because, I mean, I don't want to run out of gas along the way. And do you have a map? Like, do you know exactly where we're going? And do you have enough money for where we're going? Mm -hmm. I mean, he doesn't ask any of those questions. He just is there for the ride expectant. Yes. He doesn't care where we go. Anticipating something good. Right. Anticipating time with his father and wants to be not in the back seat or not a little ways away, but like 
side by side. And that's the expectancy of a son that I want to be with my heavenly father, where it's, you know, I don't know how God's going to solve this. And I'm not even going to try to figure it out because honestly, the ways God comes through are not ways I could have scripted if I had stayed up all night and written 50 scenarios. It's the 51st scenario. Mm -hmm. It's the unexpected in a way only God could come through. And so I've learned I want to be more like Chase, my son. I want to get in this truck with God. He's driving. I'm not. I'm not demanding to know where we're going, how we get there, when are we getting there? Is it 20 minutes or is it an hour? Right. You know, is it going to be a bumpy road or a smooth road? Like, it's okay. I trust you. You drive. I'm with you. Mm. And that spirit of sonship versus the orphan who it is all up to me and I need to know all the details and I need to make it happen. Mm. And I need to, I need to, I, 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 I make it happen. Yeah. I don't ever want to be that man again. I want to be a son. And yes, a son grows up and matures, but he always is expectant on his father, even when he grows up. And I want Chase, even when he's 25, when it comes to the two of us, I want him to be expectant. What does my dad have for me? What does my father have to say? What are his thoughts for me? What yes. are, and, and that's the expectancy I wish I had lived in and a way of life I wish I had embraced in my 20s. It really would have changed everything. And, you know, would I have ended up in the career I was in? Would I have ended up in the roles I was in? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I think God ultimately, his desire for me is right where I am here, but it could have come through a lot of different paths. Yes. And I think a lot of times I was the equivalent of a young boy in the passenger seat of a truck grabbing the steering wheel, you know, trying to drive when my feet don't even touch the pedals, mm. thinking I knew best. And man, you get in a lot of wrecks that way mm. and you do a lot of damage that way. And you sure don't enjoy the ride. Mm. That is just absolutely it because you're you're so right. 90% of the guys listening are overachievers and they're just looking for more performance tips, you know, but they're in pain. You articulated the pain. You just gave really poignant stories to what it can look like from your bosses to your coworkers to your kids to your family to finances. I just think that's um, that's a bullseye. Well, man, I love what you're doing with those guys. It's rare they have anybody who's fighting for their hearts like you. Well, you think, like, put yourself back at, no kids, no marriage, but put yourself at 23 and have heard this. Yeah. You know, now it's like you have to deny it. So, you know, back then when we were both that age, it's like there's this temptation to go, no, no, I'll be the exception, right? Right. I'll kick ass. I'll make a shitload of money. I'll make a name for myself and I'll be a good man. Right. But you hear this and you go, no, you actually don't get both. Right. Right? Right. Exactly. So that's what I love is that your story forces them to say, what do I want? Well, and I'm just thankful that God has given me enough days to start on this journey of the man I'm becoming now. Yes. Because, man, I mean, a lot of guys through whatever disease or accident or whatever, like something tragic happens and it's done. Like there is no second act or there is no, well, when I get to be 50, then I'll step off the tread. You know, know, I've heard a lot of guys, you have to say, you know, well, I'm just going to bust my ass. Right. But then at 50, I'm going to get to retire. Exactly. And then I'll get to live this life. And it's like, are you kidding me? Exactly. Like who's told you you're going to be, if you're 35, right. you think you got 15 years to do this and, exactly. and then everything's going to work. Oh, my gosh. And if you have, you know, I'm just so aware, like, it's relational equity that's the greatest equity. And so you spend 15 years and you bust your ass and you get all the money so that you can take care of your kids and then take care of your grandkids. But they don't like you. Right. Right? I mean, really, it's so sad. Yeah, they'll take your money, but it doesn't buy a relationship. And then they're in the throes of busyness and they're young parents. What's so seductive that I really wouldn't have believed if I didn't spend so much time with older men is you can't buy back the relational equity 
that you forfeited in this younger decade where it feels like you're struggling to have enough, you know, right. have enough money to make it all work and you're so busy. But what you have in this decade of young kids is the possibility of relational equity. Right. But if you don't cash in on that and you don't do the soul work that makes you increasingly a better person to be with, a better friend, a better spouse, a better parent, when the day comes that you have the time and the resources to do it, they don't want you. No. And that was the, you know, the saving grace with God's mercy for me was, thank God that I did not get married and start a family in my 20s. Yes. I mean, it was a for a lot of reasons. Because by the time these transitions would have happened, yes. my kids would be going to high school, college. Wow. And I know I would have missed it if I were that man. It doesn't matter if I had a kid or a wife. Like, I was so focused on the the carrot of success and performance and had bought into all the reasons why that would ultimately be good for them Mm. that if I had done that yeah well Alan thank you thank you for taking the risk way back when in those years to say I know the man I want to become because it was that choice and the thousands of choices over this past decade that have allowed you to become that man and take this ancient road and help turn around and point out some of the footsteps to us. So really appreciate this time and let's do it again. Thanks, Morgan. Thanks. Dallas Willard said that the most important thing about a man is not what he does, but it's who he becomes. If you enjoyed this and would like more podcasts and blogs, and other resources to take this decade of excavation and go deeper, join us at becomegoodsoil.com.